So you have your notes, and you can get those out, of course, and then your Bibles. We'll look at a few verses to begin and, and, and some others as we go along. This is Unit 5 of our orientation, as it says in your heading, and I've entitled this Discerning the Body. We're now to the last two or three units, two or three classes and topics that's preparing us for those of us who are going to the next phase with the King's people. This whole orientation is preparing us to break into our house groups. And um, I'm going to speak practically about that at the end of this session. But first I'm going to talk about these themes that create the values for our house churches and relationships from 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, which is why I wrote so much in your notes because I'm summarizing large portions of Scripture. I want to thank those of you who were praying for us while we were gone. There were several times where we, we really needed God to intervene on a certain level to keep things going. And uh, I, I really feel like there were several times I felt the effect and the answers of your prayers. So I want to thank you for that. You know, I almost completely lost my voice at one time. Uh, you know, which kind of, that's the main reason why I'm there. If the two tonsils aren't, or not tonsils, vocal cords aren't working, you know. My prophetic dancing skills are, are still in their amateur stage, and I've not been able to communicate 100% through my dancing. It's only been about in the high 80s, and I wanted to give the Italy people my best. So the night that it was the worst was the first night I was going to get a decent night's sleep, and I was up coughing like crazy with my throat just closing up. And so I got less sleep than I wanted to for the very reason that, you know, because I was coughing and it just woke up pretty, pretty well fine. You know, my voice was a little rough, but it was, I felt fine, very functional. My throat worked and I just felt like that was the Lord because everything physically was the opposite. And I felt specifically it was the answer to your prayer. So thank you. And um, yeah, we had a great trip. People baptized in the spirit. People set free of certain things. We saw deliverances and baptisms in the Holy Ghost and really uh, just had a great time downloading a lot of this teaching of, of the biblical vision of church, which is specifically what they asked me to come teach. Even though I would have come no matter what, uh, that's specifically what they asked me. So I said, okay. So I did. And we got a great relationship with this first church we went to, and it caused quite a stir. But it was a good stir. We had a lot of outside conversations about these very issues that we've been talking about, you know, having taught it in a public setting. Then there were a lot of people who wanted private meetings or I had a question and answer thing once. And so they're really wrestling with those things, really wrestling. They want to work it out on a practical level. We talked about some practical things. But anyway, you know, sometimes it got a little heated, not toward me, but um just on how to implement it and how quickly to go, because there's a lot of tradition in Italy, you might imagine. And so what's the wisdom on how fast to implement something that's a little bit more biblical and less political? Uh, so that was where some of the controversy came. But that's where my I just took the I can't speak Italian card, just punched that in and smile. And um, we ate pizza. So thank you. Thank you for your prayers. So we'll, we'll start by looking at 1 Corinthians 11:29. It's kind of a negative verse to start with, but I didn't intend it this way. 
see the subtitle there in your notes or my underlined title, an exposition of 1 Corinthians 11:29 and 12, 12 through 13 within its larger context. All of this is about discerning the body. That's what we're talking about. We're going to talk more about the practical aspects of what the body of Christ is and then what we're supposed to do to fulfill that scriptural vision. And then next time or somewhere between the next two times, We'll, we'll speak about mission and how the house churches and then our larger group is to express kingdom mission. Right? So 1 Corinthians 11.29, we'll read. Sorry about the negative reference to start. That's not the part we're, we're, we're keying in on, but we still need to read it uh, just to get a little context. Paul's talking about the Lord's Supper, and he says, He who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge... Or discern the body rightly. So that's the main reference that I wanted to read. The issue of judgment is not something I think we're under or we're eating unworthily. That's not my issue. But the fact that in that context and with these things happening in Corinth, a misuse of the Lord's Supper, which we'll discuss, and then the misuse of that supper uh, is... To eat, of, to eat of it in the wrong spirit and in the wrong, uh, for the wrong reasons is to eat and drink judgment. And the reason, Paul says, is because the people who are doing so are not discerning the body. So needless to say, that's pretty important. The judgment that Paul talked about here was people who were sick continually or had already died in this local church. It's pretty interesting to me that he waits 11 chapters to talk about this. A more prophetic person would have launched, you know, that chestnut right off the top. It's like, okay, we have a problem. God's judging you. That's why you've gone to several funerals and made several hospital visits. So why don't you, think, why don't you say we get this issue taken care of? Well, but that, that wasn't the ultimate root issue of everything. That's why it's discussed so late. The ultimate root issue was secularism and worldliness infiltrating the church and replacing the life of the cross. But one of the manifestations of that was this issue of selfishly partaking of the Lord's Supper. And in so doing, it actually created a judgment scenario. And Paul says, here's the problem. You're not discerning the body. And so this still is a very important issue. And so this is what we're talking about today, discerning the body. Moving on to my next passage there, 12.12. We're just picking a few things out. We'll read some more verses later because we're going to summarize this whole section. 12, 12 and following. All right, 12, 12 and 13. Um, For even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. So also is Christ. So I want to read that again. In verse 12, he's certainly referring to the body of Christ, but he's first referring to the human body for his analogy. So even as the body, that is the human body, even though it's all one unit, and yet it has many members, and all the members of the body, though they're many, are one body. So it's, it's the simultaneous diversity and unity. It's this mystery. You've got a bunch of members, but it's one body. Even though it's one body, you many members. And even though it's many members, it's one body. He's got to speak out of both sides of his truth-speaking mouth to capture this mystery. It's not just that there's, the body is one body, but it's made up of many members. 
right? The, the little toe may not carry the same significance as your, your throat or your, your face or your eyes, but they all combine to make the body one as God designed it. And so Paul says, so is Christ. Not just, he doesn't say the body of Christ. He says Christ. Because here he's referring to the entire mystery of Christ, including the head who is Jesus himself, and then his church, which is his body. That's the way Christ operates in the world. He's the head, but he expresses himself through his body on the earth. And all of that makes up one body. Or in Ephesians, which we looked at a few weeks ago, one new man. So there's a great mystery there, and I've picked this verse because it expresses the fundamental issue of the teaching today, discerning the body. And then verse 13, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So we're reading that verse because it brings in the spirit who is one. There's only one spirit in Christianity. That we refer to the Holy Spirit, God's spirit. But that one spirit takes each and every separate person when we're born again and immerses us in the one body. He takes us and puts us in the one body. And again, he's called one spirit. So all we different people with different backgrounds, personalities and gift sets, we're all made to drink of the one spirit. So there you have it. Now, these verses I've picked out of the larger context and. We're going to expound the larger context in a moment, but I wanted to start, number one, with some preliminary comments that we've uh, made before and going to repeat them today. Let's remember our kingdom triangle. Now, I've been accused, I feel slanderously, of using these teachings only to um, express my artistic prowess, but I deny it. That's actually pretty good. I shouldn't joke around about this. This is the, the analogy that I use to give us definition and where I'm going. For those of you who can't see, if you want to come up here on the, on the front, on the floor. No pressure, though. No? Okay. The, the issue of church is the kingdom of God. We're not trying to create church on our own. What our concern is the kingdom. Because it's, it's, my, it's my contention and it's one of my fundamental values that it's the kingdom of heaven that creates the church because the king creates the church. And when the kingdom is manifest, then you'll have church expressed. So what we're going after is not church per se. We're going after the kingdom because that's what Jesus taught us to do is seek first the kingdom. And then everything else will be added. Right. When, when Jesus was confessed as king in Matthew 16, Jesus conf- then he confesses the church in response. You call me king or Christ. Well, I call you church. So church comes from the kingdom. So this is what we're after. Our concern is not to have a successful church. We want to be successful spiritually. I don't want to be a failure. But in terms of the world and what it calls success, or in terms of what sometimes is popularly the way we try to have church, and that's just to grow our church, That's not what I'm interested in, and that's not what I'm teaching you to be interested in, whether you join us or not. What we have to be interested in is the kingdom. That's what we're all about. We manifest the kingdom, bringing God's rule into people's lives for salvation, for healing, and for joining his purposes. Church falls naturally into place after that, which is what I'm saying here, because then this kingdom is expressed in... 
then these two angles. You've got the kingdom on the top, and then down here, the kingdom is always expressed through family on the one hand, and then simultaneously, it's expressed through mission. Like I said, there's a reason I have to boast in my drawings there. Look, see that. And it's both at the same time. You know, kingdom, when it's expressed on the earth, looks like family. It doesn't look like politics, even though we're talking about the rule of God. It looks like family. Kingdom always creates family. The kingdom of heaven is always about sons. Right? That's a consistent theme. The, the kingdom of heaven is all about sons and daughters of God. The king is a son. Jesus is the son of God. Therefore, he's king. Those two always go together in the Old Testament, more so in the New. But the kingdom of heaven is always about advancing the rule of God throughout the nations, making disciples and influencing people through the, you know, uh, the, the proclamation of the gospel and the deliverance from demons and healing and joining people who were, who were lost into the, the flock of the Lord and creating church, disciples and churches out of them and influencing society. It's mission, mission, mission. But it's never just mission and it's never just family. It's always both. The kingdom of heaven on the run is always simultaneously family and mission. It's never anything in between. If we have programs or organizations that help us, they serve these purposes, fine. But if they ever overshadow these purposes, we miss the whole point. And then we're, we're just having our version of church instead of bringing the kingdom, which always creates family and mission. And so I'm thinking that, you know, next time or one of the next times we'll focus on mission because today we're focusing on family. We're going from this to that to end our orientation. So in letter A... Uh, Kingdom creates both family and mission. These expressions are distinct yet organically related. Both express God's heart. Mission keeps family from becoming isolated and introverted. See, sometimes people overemphasize one or the other. Well, let's just emphasize both. Just like you don't emphasize gasoline over tires. I mean, people who aren't mechanics, they know if you don't have tires on your car, it doesn't matter if you have good gas in the tank. Well, I'm a gasoline guy. I don't care about those tires. Like, well, you know, you, we, that's common sense to us, even if we're not com, uh, mechanics. But in the kingdom, we get, we get so focused. We think our corner on things is like everything. It's like, no, we, we have to have a fuller vision and let it fit in. So mission keeps family from becoming isolated and introverted. If we don't have a, if we don't have a self-conscious sense of what the kingdom is about in terms of wanting to spread in advance, then we'll only focus all these relationships in our little hoity-toity house church little movement thing and we'll just become all introverted and isolated and perhaps even worse cult-like which i've seen happen i've seen happen in my own eye with my own eyes in my own city from my own church but they kind of broke off and a, a couple of them got healed praise god uh and then family keeps mission from becoming success driven or competitive or program driven market marketing oriented or hollow in other words, if we're just mission-oriented, but we don't have the family full of the Spirit, that's the alternative, alive and in full color on the earth, into which we're bringing people out of the darkness, then what are we bringing them to? It's just some form of churchianity. It may not be fully hollow, but it's going to have some hollowness that you'll hear when you thump the thing. So the two work together. And, and furthermore, they fuel one another. The sense of mission should really create a more dynamic family. And a really dynamic family will always be thinking in terms of love and outreach and will fuel the mission. 
Letter B, so now we add two elements to, the, to our precious triangle here. We add two elements that produce these two expressions of family and mission. And these two elements are the spirit and relationships. So I'm just going to add to our triangle. Hopefully that will not offend anyone that we're adding. This, you can maybe kind of put them on the lines there. I'll just put, abbreviate that. Sorry if that doesn't look very good. That looks kind of... I'm sorry. I'm working on it, honey. I'm working on it. It's not... I, not, I should have used a different color. It's not very kid-friendly today. today. The, the spirit and relationships is what creates family, and it's the spirit and relationships that creates mission. They both work for both. In order to develop kingdom family, we need the Holy Spirit. We need to invest in the Holy Spirit and to invest in relationships. And it's the same thing with mission. There's different forms of mission, but ultimately it, it all comes through relating to people. Not just having programs or set outreaches. Though those things are awesome when they're inspired by the Lord. I'm not saying that those things are not legitimate. Of course they are. You can have all kinds of God ideas. But ultimately these things happen through relationships. Even when we're affecting people for the gospel. Most people, not all, but most people come to the Lord through relationships, either family or friends. I hope this works. How many of you came to the Lord through a track, passing out tracks? How many of you came to the Lord through some kind of evangelistic service? Okay, Lord did one, and also Celia. Okay, and yes, ma'am, you also. So I saw three hands. How many came to the Lord through uh, like a, okay, that was an evangelistic service, maybe a, a television outreach program of some kind? There's usually a few on each one. How many of you came to the Lord through a family member or a friend? Raise your hand. So just in our own group, you, and mine goes up with that. For me, I wouldn't have come to the Lord if it weren't for my relationships. First my mom, then when I met the church people, as crazy as I thought they were, and I thought they were nuts. I mean, who goes around screaming Jesus with tears rolling down your faith? I mean, what kind of freak does that? How can you think that way? That's not cool. And yet, in my heart, something got won. I knew that they knew the Lord. And I didn't feel any. I, I felt very little of the Spirit at first. Well, I probably felt a lot, but I didn't detect it as such. It didn't feel supernatural. But those relationships won me to the Lord. So if, if we could keep it, everything I'm going to talk about, you know, I'm, I'm going to give you an exposition. I've got big paragraphs written out because there's so much I want to give you. But we don't have to get lost in the details. I'm summarizing everything right up front. If we remember anything, we can remember this. To create family and to create mission, we invest in these two things. Life in the spirit and relationships, period. If we value those two things over everything, I don't think we can help but advance the kingdom of God. We have to make it our agenda in the Lord, a holy and humble agenda. We want to invest in relationships, both to internally to create family and deepen it, and externally, not with a, a superficial agenda, but, but because we love people and we want to bring them to the Lord. So everything's relationships, relationships, relationships. Any other plans we have to reach people, may they work as they're anointed by God. But we never want to lose the value of relationships. And then we want to invest ourselves in the spirit. We want to be spirit people. We want to be people of prayer. We want to be people who manifest the gifts when we evangelize and certainly manifest the gifts inside church gatherings. 
So our church, which is what we're focusing on here, our family expression is all about the Holy Spirit and it's all about relationships. Does that sound good? You guys like that or do you want me to repeat it a hundred times till you like it? No, we like it now. Okay, so these are two crucial values for manifesting the kingdom of God on the earth. So now we're going to look at the church is a family. And here we're going to begin to expound on 1 Corinthians uh, the, the, the larger context of 17 through 34. So I'm going to give you some what I'm calling exegetical comments. In other words, I'm going to try to expose us together to what was going on in Corinth in their original setting and then move out into the principles that we're going to embrace. Okay. So when Paul talks about discerning the body, he's addressing the Corinthians who are having problems around the Lord's Supper. So in letter A, There are schisms at the Lord's Supper in Corinth. That's social divisions. The wealthier and socially stronger people in the Corinthian church refuse to wait for and eat with the weaker, poorer members of the church. Okay? These are social issues. People of wealth and social strength, prominence, were refusing to eat together with the people in the church who were socially weaker and uh, less wealthy. This was absolutely common in their environment. And I make a comment about that in a minute. But in the church, it should have been the reverse. But it's everything they were used to. This wasn't even like that bad to do this. It was very good to do this in their minds outside of the kingdom. So they had a hard time reversing that in the kingdom. So Paul goes on to admonish the Corinthians for their behavior. He corrects them. He chastises them. And his reason and his source of authority is the Jesus tradition of the supper. So these social divisions are occurring when they gather for their meal. Because that's the main thing they did as a church when they gathered. They didn't have a service. They had this meal. And they ate together. And when, and when they manifest these divisions at this meal, Paul addresses them and corrects them for it. And his source of authority is the meal that Jesus instituted and continued as a tradition of the apostles. So that's his source of authority, and it's his reason for correcting them. So this, uh, this source, I go on to say, it reflects the Lord's own bodily sacrifice which becomes a metaphor for the gathered church as a body. When, when Paul quotes the Jesus tradition, he says, I delivered to you what was first given to me. That on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, he gave thanks at the meal, and he said, this is my body. And then he takes the cup with the wine in it, and he says, this is my blood of the new covenant. And as often as you do this, do this in memory of me. And that was one or two of the courses of the meal in a Passover meal. So in the context of the meal, this is what Jesus did, right? What Paul is focusing on, and if you go back and read it in detail on your own, in light of what I wrote for you, you'll see this. Jesus twice refers to his body, meaning his physical body, that's represented in the bread. Then Paul uses a play on words in the verse we started with. And he says, you who are leaving one another out of the supper, you're not discerning the body. There's a message in the body of Christ, his physical body, 
for the body of Christ. There's a message there. So if you're going to celebrate this supper that was all about his blood and his body, but you're not acting like a body, you're not discerning the body of Christ. Does that make sense? If you guys have to stop me and ask a question, you're welcome to do that for this stuff. But what I'm saying right here is that Paul is dealing with the social divisions in light of the metaphor of Jesus' physical body, which then becomes a metaphor for the gathered community. When he starts this passage, in fact, we can look at it back in 1 Corinthians 11. let's, Let's go ahead and look at that a little bit. And in verse 17, let's look at verse 17 when he begins to discuss this issue. In fact, in 1117, Paul is entering into a whole new topic in his letter, right? And he says, now in giving this instruction, the things I'm about to tell you about, I don't praise you because you you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. So now, for the first time in this letter, Paul is addressing what the Corinthians do when they come together. This is the first time he talks about this in the whole letter. He's launching into that section right here. So he says, when you come together, he uses that terminology, coming together. Then verse 18, he uses it again. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, he repeats the terminology, as a church. So this is the first time he's dealing with problems of what they do when they actually meet. So that's what this whole section is about. Problems when they gather. And he refers to them as a church and as coming together. That's the terminology. And he uses it frequently right up front here. Verse 20. Therefore, when you meet together. This is the first time he's using this terminology. And he's already put a flurry together of three times in a short space. It's not to eat the Lord's Supper when you're together. Because, you know, one's eating his supper, not even waiting for the other. Another one's getting drunk. He says, you've got your own houses to enjoy your own private meals. This is different. But the point is, he refers to them as a gathered church until he refers to Jesus laying out the tradition who gave his body for us. That's when he says, you're a body. He changes the terminology because he's moving into something else and deepening this whole issue of what I'm calling The kingdom is family. So in light of this reference to Jesus' own body, he says, you're a body. You have to discern that body. Back to your notes here. Right somewhere in the middle, it's reflecting the Lord's own bodily sacrifice, which becomes a metaphor for the gathered church as a body. It is a sacred meal. And this is what Paul taught in this passage. That's a sacred meal that proclaims the Lord's death And awaits his return through the church's exercise of its body life at the meal. Sorry. I hit this plastic table. Old social division should be destroyed at this meal. Since it represents the Lord through its revolutionary body life. By not discerning this purpose of the meal. They were not discerning the body of their Lord. As it is now manifested in a spiritually and socially unified people of faith. The gathered church. On that basis they were misusing the Lord's supper. And bringing judgment on themselves. They were not treating this meal as a sacred occasion. That celebrated and expressed the Lord's work on the cross. But as a common meal. That actually celebrated the social divisions. 
of the Roman Empire. Now, here's where I'm coming from. A little background on letter B. Meals were powerful social occasions and symbols of fellowship in the ancient world, and they still are today. This is why the strong in Corinth were not willing to eat with the weak, because social honor determined life itself in the ancient world. Here's what I'm talking about. If, if you're a prominent, powerful person in the Roman Empire, you don't have table fellowship with someone on the lower part of the economic scale. You simply don't do it. Because everything in the empire was about honor and shame. It was very valuable to have a certain reputation. Life ran on that. Now, it's a little different. There, there's some similarities in our modern culture, but it's different. For us, it's more materialism and personal success. When you have more things that you own, you, 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 know, you can be successful even if you don't have the greatest reputation. Because we put value on a little bit different things, though there's some overlap. In the ancient world, they valued public honor above everything. And table fellowship was a powerful symbol and expression of, of where that honor came from and what it was. If you're a powerful person and you eat with a socially weak person, you will lose face, you will lose business contacts, you will be shamed, and you will, you, it will change your life forever. There's a reason why Peter stopped eating with Gentiles, because who you ate with meant who you have fellowship with. I mean, why would Peter stop eating with Gentiles in Galatians 2? And then why would Paul rebuke him publicly? The, the other great apostle rebuked publicly in front of the congregation of Antioch at their meal, rebuked, them in front of Jew, rebuked him in front of Jews and Gentiles, and said, you, my friend, are compromising the message of the gospel itself. There's something powerful about who you eat with. And the main thing they did when they met was they broke bread and they had prayers and they shared the gifts. Well, you used to be a wealthy, powerful person who had his name on plaques all over the city or engraved in stones because you helped finance this and finance that. So your name is there and you're the friend of senators. And that's a huge deal. Now you're eating with someone who's a slave or a freed slave. One meal, if it's known, you're doomed for good. That was a huge deal for them to come together and eat the Lord's Supper. It was easier for them to leave the the less prominent people out. So the, pe- the, the, the wealthy people ate in the nice room, the dining room, and the other people had to eat out in the atrium, which, which is fine. And Paul's like, you can't do that at this meal. This is not what Jesus died for. One of, remember, we talked about it a few weeks ago. One of the greatest manifestations of the work of redemption is the unifying of God's people. To overcome these social and economic uh, racial, ethnic background barriers to overcome them is the most powerful work in the universe because you have to eradicate sin and death and the devil to overcome these supernatural divisions. So Paul's saying your meal is a revolution. The way you come together proclaims the Lord's death. Do you see how that works now? Meals were important and honor and shame were important. They all went together. Remember Jesus said when you come to a uh, if you come to a wedding, was it a wedding banquet or just a banquet? When you come to a banquet, don't take the first seat because the, the, the head of the banquet, the master, may come to you and say, that's not your seat, that's another person's seat. Go sit down over there. And Jesus says, and in front of everyone, you'll have to go sit down over there and you'll be ashamed. Even he was referring to their sense of honor and shame. 
He said, but if you come in and take the last seat, then they'll call you up. You can't go down. And then, and what does he say? He says this specifically in front of everyone. You'll have honor. This is very important to them. And then he says, he who who exalts himself will be humble. He who humbles himself will be exalted. It's no problem being exalted as long as you're willing to humble yourself. Remember at the meal, the master, Yeshua, comes down and washes the feet of his fellow disciples. He's putting himself in the lowest place of that banquet. Peter's like, you can't do that. You're the master. Jesus says, you let me do this or you have no part in me. You have to receive me as lowly if you want to receive me as exalted. I am willing to experience shame to get God's honor. And that happens so often at a meal. Right? So my point is not just to talk about a meal. Though there's a little bit of that that's important. More than a little bit. But my point is it's the principle that there needs to be a a, a discernment of the body that I think we sorely lack in our culture. I really do. I don't think it's I don't think it's coincidence that we we have inherited the ceremony of the Roman church as our way of doing the Lord's Supper. Not because I'm nitpicky and I think we should have a meal, but because there's something expressed at a meal that you can't express in a conference setting with just elements. I'm not saying it's wrong to do that, I'm saying it's not best. It seems more than coincidental that well that the way we practice the meal may in fact reflect the lack of investment in relationships and mutual honor. And so there's almost like this automatic inclination to do it in a way that's less to do it in a way that's less family oriented and body like and to do it more in a way that's just got that touch or more than a touch of ceremony to it. It's almost like an automatic inclination to a, a, something of a compromise we already have in lack of investment in the spirit and relationships. It's like when we have good relationships in a church setting, that, that's, and it's becoming more popular, thank God, but it, it almost becomes for many you know, icing on the cake rather than the very thing you do when you get together is relate to one another in the spirit. So let us see, through his sacrifice, Christ created a whole new society that's represented at the dramatic social occasion of the Lord's Supper. Jesus Christ brings people together in himself. He makes formerly alienated people into one body, which is a family unit, an organically united life team that embodies Christ in its city by virtue of its unusual revolutionary unity. So letter D, the point in all of this for us, the Lord is calling us to enter into the family realities of our life in Christ. This is, this is part of the value of what we're doing. What I'm trying to accomplish in partnership with the spirit, my family and team and anyone else who feels to join us is to, is to in partnership with all of these, create a sphere of the spirit and a sphere, an area of ministry in which these values live and move and have their being. That's what I'm trying to do here and trying to download. So even if you're not joining us, I want you to hear what I'm saying about these values because I take them to mean, I take them to be very biblical. 
And for those who fail to join us, I'm, I'm setting you up so you understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. But there's certain things we'll do that overlap, I'm sure, will look like what any other church does. Because I'm not trying to be different for the sake of being different. But there are certain values I feel like we have to seize hold on, seize hold of, and then do our best to implement them practically. That's why I'm expounding the scriptures and making these points leading to my goal. So moving up. Continuing in letter D there, the next sentence, unity, in quotes there, unity is more than the absence of disunity. Biblical unity refers to more than the absence of conflict. But it's the presence of fellowship and family connections in Christ. Now, our modern American culture may not have the depth of natural social divisions that ancient Corinth had. Where life and death and future hinged on who you, who you related to. We may not have it that much, though I add in parentheses, we may have more than we would care to, we would care to admit. It's just more subtle, I think. Nonetheless, we must still seize hold of the more constructive principle that we can distill from this passage that God calls his church community to build and cultivate its relationships in Christ assertively and diligently crossing all natural dividing lines by the spirit in order to reveal the mystery of Jesus Christ in our city. We may not have the negative issues that the Corinthians had, though I think we have our version of them. But if we don't have those, then we we don't have to take that for ourselves. But the positive value system from which Paul is speaking when he addresses their problem, we have to grab that for ourselves. And that is the church is a family. And just like my family gathers for a meal and we have fellowship because we're family, so should the church. Not just in gathering for a meal, but in that's, that's family stuff. All the other big, more, I don't know, liturgical and formal expressions. I'm not saying they're all wrong. They've been added on and become definitive rather than the family aspects becoming definitive. And we want to enter back into that. That's the positive principle. And so much so that Paul says, you know, these other guys that were outside of your social circles, outside of Christ, guess what? They're family now. You know, at your own family table, unless you have a big gathering, it's Thanksgiving or something. Usually the kids don't eat in another room, but we've all done that on certain occasions. It's not like, well, you know, sorry kids, mom and I are eating together tonight. You have to go in the other room, have your own banquet, hope it works out for you. It's like, no, we're family, you know. And as a family, we still have, we still have a business aspect to family. You've got a budget, you'll try to make something, something of a profit in a sense. You've got to organize certain things. We have charts on the wall in school and who does what chores and all that. I mean, there's organization. There's nothing wrong with all that, but we're not first a business. We're not first, uh, I'm talking about the Gladstones. We're not first a business. We're not first a school. We're not first uh, an organization. That We have all those elements. We're first a family. Who happens to have those other things so that we can function. So I don't have a problem with the church having some of those other things, but they bec- they've become fundamental instead of the family becoming fundamental. So we won't even bother really having a, a, like a family gathering as our typical way of meeting. That's the special thing we do. I'm seeking to reverse that, not just to be different, 
but to be biblical. Paul moves on to chapter 12. I entitle this part, number three, one body has one spirit. You all are familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It begins with the, the gifts of the spirit in the first 11 verses, right? We can even look at that. Chapter 12, verse 1. We'll just read a few verses. He, he starts out in verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware. And then he launches into these matters of the Spirit testifying to Jesus. No one says, no one speaking by the Spirit of God in verse 3 says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So we're talking about the Spirit. And then in the next few verses, there's all these varieties and diversities. But one Spirit, one Lord, and one God. And then he says in verse 7, we're all given, each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then he lists Nine gifts, word of wisdom and knowledge, all the same spirit, faith, gifts of healings, one spirit, the working of miracles in verse 10, prophecy, tongue, uh, distinguishing of spirits, tongues, and interpretation of tongues, all one spirit. That's his point. That's important in a pagan environment. There's different spirits causing different, you know, giving different prophecies and oracles. And they testify to different lords or political figures and who's going to do what when. But he says, not in our kingdom, there's only one prophetic spirit, there's only one Lord. And he'll only testify to the one Lord. And he'll never be disqualified from his throne. The spirit says today, you know, he's a curse, we're going to have another king. No. No one by the spirit will say Jesus is a curse. That all belongs to your pagan, you know, you go to see, visit your psychic's world. You go to all these different spirits and oracles and prophets of all these different gods. For us, there's one spirit, there's one God, there's one Lord, Right? Then he, he says, but there's all these different gifts, though so there's one spirit. And then you know what he does in verse 12? For the rest of chapter 12, he talks about the body. He talks more about the body in chapter 12 than he does about the spirit. Usually you hear scholars or teachers say, refer to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 as all about the gifts. And it's true. It's full of the matters of the gifts. But chapter 12 says more about the body than it does the gifts. When in, in, there's, in verse 12, there's a turn where he mixes them. He talks about the body and the spirit. And then after he gets through that little passage in verse 14, it's all about the body. So really, when he guys, when he talked about the spirit's gifts, he never left the body topic. Read them in context. He started talking about Christ's body and discerning the body before the gifts. Then he talked about the gifts in a certain way. Variety of gifts, but one spirit. Then he says variety of members, one body. Then talks about the body. So what this is referring to, well, it's all the same. We're going to look at your notes. All right. So letter A, in light of Paul's body language used for the Lord's Supper, Paul takes things a step further. This family gathering, which is Jesus Christ's body, is united by the presence and supernatural expressions of God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one Spirit that testifies to the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as Lord. Right? That's in contrast to the pagan world around the Corinthians. He's the one Spirit. He is the one Spirit manifest in a variety of gifts. Likewise, the body has a variety of parts, but is one body. The body and spirit are like one another. That's why Paul mentions them both in this passage. There's a parallel between the spirit and the body. 
The spirit has many gifts, but is one. The body has many members, but is one. That's interesting. Diversity serves unity. Each gift is important because it comes from the same spirit. Remember, the Corinthians were favoring tongues. So Paul says, look, all these gifts are important. And he starts with a word of wisdom. Hardly anyone cares about a word of wisdom. People either want to, if they're really Pentecostal, they want to fly out in tongues or they want to do miracles. I mean, how, how many preachers who are gifted in, the, in faith or the miraculous or that kind of thing, how many people go to hear them? A lot. But how many people go to hear a good solid wisdom teaching? Sometimes, but not as much. Yet wisdom is first consistently because it creates the environment for everything else. Paul's point is all these gifts are important. You can't despise one uh, you know, underneath another or exalt one over another. It says they're all important because they all come from the Spirit. You know, Likewise, all you different cats who come together for your meeting, each one has something to offer. They're not unimportant because they may be weaker socially. They bring something important to the body because they're a member of the body. So each gift is important because it all comes from the same spirit. Each body member is important because it's a member of this one body. That is the body of Jesus Christ. Therefore, a body member cannot look down on itself in comparison to more prominent body parts. I'm referring to a few verses in 1 Corinthians where Paul says the hand, I forget what body parts he uses, but you, you can't look at yourself and say, well, I'm only a foot. I'm not an eye, so I'm not a part of the body. Paul says, you can't think, he first says it this way, you can't think of yourself that way. You can't compare yourself to a more prominent body member and think of yourself as disqualified. You shouldn't say that about yourself. That's the first analogy he uses. And then the second one, he reverses it and says, likewise, or I say, paraphrasing Paul, likewise, a body member cannot look down on another member that seems less prominent. So I can't say, because I'm not this you know, great, good-looking leader who speaks well like gina i'm not like her so i'm really nobody you know she's like the the face and i'm the little toe you don't really need me but you can't do without her i can't say that about myself because there's many members in one body but neither can i say all that gina all she does is preach and teach well and prophesy but i lead i'm a great administrator or all that one does is intercede in quiet. But I'm this great prominent speaker, so I can't take them seriously, right? Paul says you can't say that. It may, outwardly to, a, to your culture, the little toe may look insignificant compared to the face or you know, the, the hand working or the, the mouth speaking or something. But it's still very important. It provides balance. I mean, when one member suffers, all members suffer with it. You're walking in your room fast because you're in a rush and you nail that little toe on the corner of the coffee table. And it's not like, eh, you know. it's just a little toe. But the entire body from the top of your head to the bottom of, of your feet, are, they're saluting that little toe. They're like, we, we acknowledge you. We love you. You're very, very important. If you're unhappy, we're unhappy. So we can't compare ourselves with one another, but, but Paul will take that a step further in a moment. Likewise, a body member, okay, I already said that, diversity, last, last sentence there of that paragraph, whew, okay. Diversity is necessary and serves one purpose of representing Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, not only must the stronger members, okay, now I'm paraphrasing Paul again. He teaches them that not only must the stronger members accept and associate with the weaker ones, he goes so far as to say they must honor them above themselves. Accepting and associating with them is revolutionary. Honoring them above yourself who doesn't need honor, that's, that's completely off the chart. That's unimaginable. You either are a follower of Jesus in this community in Corinth or you can't, you can't associate. Because you're doing something that will ruin your life forever. You better believe that you're a kingdom person. So when these people, what Paul's talking about is then these are the people, yeah, why let's hear what you have to say. Let's let you lead in prayer today. Do you have an interpretation for tongues today? Let's pray in the Holy Ghost. It's not like just the prominent strong people. It's they're the very ones that should be reaching down to the weaker ones who are less inclined to, to be prominent and see what they have. Now I know there's risk in that because you can get all kinds of wacky things going. Gina, after you left Italy, some of the guys were telling me about some of the people that stand up to testify. because They have testimony services. And I could not believe some of the testimonies some of them gave. And some of it's not even repeatable. I mean, all these long, drawn-out stories about bodily functions that aren't working properly. And then one little slight change, and then you get this whole long, graphic, gross story. And people are like... (laughs) Or this one guy testified to... You know, before he was a Christian, he drank one glass, one bottle of wine, because this is Italy. They drink wine. It's part of their social fabric. So he testified one day he got up and said, I used to be able to drink one bottle of wine, and it made me drunk. But now I'm a Christian. I can drink two whole bottles and not get drunk. (laughs) Praise the Lord. These, these Italian guys from the same church, they're telling me belly laughing while they're telling me. And there's a few of them like that. There's risk in honoring people above yourself. There is risk. And we will need to exhort and correct one another gently and work things out, especially as we're learning to do this well. But we don't want to develop ministry based on our desire to avoid risk. I mean, sometimes people do things wrong. We don't want to try to shut them out. It's like, well, let's teach them how to do it right and let's honor them. doesn't mean let everything go and have these wacky, meaningless testimony hours. We have to you know, do things well and in order, but we can't build ourselves. Family doesn't do that. Try to avoid the risk, right? Aren't the little ones always the ones that say, well, I want to do that by myself. I want to do that by myself. Well, you know, this, and it's hard to navigate how much to let them do, but there's a reason why there's a desire to do that. It's part of the normal growth process. Well, the little ones in the body, too. There's a certain honor they have to be bestowed by the stronger ones because the stronger ones should be strong enough to handle these mistakes. I mean, Peter goes off in the garden and whacks the guy's ear off. I mean, talk about misrepresenting Jesus. And Jesus could go, man, look, here I am. I'm being betrayed, man. I'm all this meek and I'm all this humble. And here you are like my chief guy. hacking. Thanks a lot. I had this thing going all the way to the garden. And now at the garden, what are they going to say about me? Oh, he's a good boy. They're nonviolent. He's got, you know, blood and all that. No, Jesus is like, I got a cover for this dude. He teaches a principle. I mean, how strong would Jesus have looked if he went into a whining fest over Peter's misrepresentation of the Spirit of Christ in the garden? 
But somehow Jesus is strong enough where he gives a teaching because they misunderstood other things he said earlier about the sword. They misunderstood. So he teaches what something clear and then heals the dude. It's the strength of the stronger one that enables the weaker one in his, uh, in his mistake to be covered. And later on, he restores him and says, all right, you're still the top guy. So it gets messy. We can't build ministries based on avoiding the messes. And you could probably come up with your own family analogies for that. Little kids make messes, right? Some of them are worse than others. And I'm, you know, maybe we can have private discussions of some analogies of that. Just joking. So they must honor them above themselves. I'm, I'm again, uh, summarizing Paul. Not only are naturally weaker members equal to the other members, but also the stronger members are called to treat them with more honor. That's the way a body functions. That's the way a family functions. I give you some Matthew references to the little ones, the little ones. Jesus is protective of the little ones. He sees us all of the family of God as the little ones. But sometimes even within the household, there's the littlest ones. And Jesus is especially careful for them. He says, if you receive a prophet in the name of a prophet, you receive a prophet's reward. But then says, receive these little ones. As if they're little ones too. But then within the body, he's very protective of the littlest ones. So they, in a sense, get the most honor. The least seem to get the most honor. Those who are last will be first. That's the pattern being reflected. The first will be last. The first don't need more honor. The last need more honor. We've done the opposite. We've predicated our entire cultural ministry in the West on giving more honor to the people who already have the honor. And the people with less honor maintain their distinction of being less honorable only to support those and give more honor to the ones who already have more honor. So we can't just flippantly function as churches any way we want. We have to coordinate things in such a way where we actually recognize and exercise these values. So then at the end of chapter 12, in my next paragraph, Paul returns to his discussion of various gifts in the final passage of chapter 12, verses 27 through 31. He doesn't actually mention the spirit that's implied, but he returns to other gifts This second list, this is where he says, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Then what? Miracles? Gifts of healings? Is that what's next? Um, Helps, administrations, or leadership, and kinds of tongues. And he says, all all are not apostles, all aren't prophets, all don't work. Miracles, teachers, healings, tongues. Earnestly desire the spirit, the, the, the greater gifts, right? So this second list, back to your notes, is of a different sort than the one found in the first 11 verses. It still includes gifts from the first list, but it adds the gifts of certain leaders and other functions that create the body and the spirit. So just something to notice about that. Notice the importance of leaders to the body for its establishment definition and ongoing formation. Paul even gives an order. First, second, third, and then. As if everything else is after the first three. And he uses the word then in sequence to be sure that that's understood. And then the first three have a sequence. This isn't to promote people as better than other people, but there's an order to the formation and sustaining of the body. 
that these leaders provide. So the, the, he gives an order to show that in some way certain leadership roles take priority in influence in order to provide the environment for the other gifts to function. In other words, if you have a miracle man starting something and, and, and he's the one kind of dictating the way things happen, you're going to have a lack of wisdom and a lack of ability for everyone to flourish and be empowered to function. Apostles set the tone. Prophets can deepen that or, 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 or join with that. But even they don't have the wisdom apostles have. God bless you. Then teachers sustain. And that's the first three. They have to be in, in, in leadership roles in the spirit, in the body to equip everybody else consistently. And then there's these other gifts. Then does not mean they're less valuable or less important, but they're not priority in order. You got someone who's a great administrator but can't teach and they're the pastor of the church. If you even have that model or they're the main leader, let's say one of the main elders, it's like, well, that's going to be a problem. There has to be a certain tone set. And so that's all part and then established and continued. That's all part of the body. So finally, in this last paragraph, there's two notes of interest. That I want to mention first, I understand chapter 12, this discussion of the spirit's gifts and the honoring of the weaker body parts that is addressing the same gathering for the Lord's Supper in chapter 11. He has not left that location. He's still in church around the Lord's Supper because the issues are the same. The social divisions that are in chapter 11 at the supper are also in chapter 12. The metaphor of the body that starts in chapter 11 is in chapter 12. When else did they share all these gifts? When they gathered as a church for the meal. Jesus had the Passover meal and then afterward there was talk and there was prayer and there was singing. And it was a similar pattern in the Roman world, even in the, the secular world. They'd have a banquet and then they would, afterward they'd have a speaker and or a discussion and or other you know, poetry and talk and whatever. So Paul just invested the Passover illustration into the Roman world. That's what they did when they met. They would meet together. They would have their meal. They would celebrate the Lord, and then they would show and share the Spirit with one another. It's got to happen. Just notice that little move there, Gene, over to the side like that. Okay, and then my second point I want to make, notice that there were no commands from Paul in chapter 12. To pursue, to pursue unity and honor. And this is significant as we proceed into the next chapter. I just want to make one point about that. Paul did not once command them to honor one another or act as a body. This is unusual because all throughout 1 Corinthians up to that point and then after that point, he commands a lot. I mean, strong commands sometimes. And as soon as he gets to this issue, he stops commanding and just describes. You can't say this, you can't say that, but we rather than honor the one. He doesn't say you should or I command you. He just describes it. He suddenly gets soft in chapter 12. You know, earlier it's like, we'll see those of you who are, you know, criticizing me if you have any power. Oh, well, I'm coming. Do I have to come with a rod? You know, and he, he gives direct commands throughout. But here he suddenly backs off. Okay, overall, letter B, the point in all of this for us is that the gathered church becomes and acts like a unified body when it manifests the spirit and its members honor one another. That's how we become the body of Christ. We really already are through the power of the spirit 
and by honor, honor, honor. And that's terminology that Paul uses. All the body members must have the same care for one another and honor one another. 1225. Especially those who are naturally less prominent. That is, who are naturally less honored in their culture. All right, number four, love will keep us together, smiley face, chapter 13. Those of you of a certain age will know why I have a smiley face there. Radio song, Captain and Tennille. Yes, ma'am. Did I skip something? Yes, I'm getting to that. Actually, I'm getting to it right now. Chapter 13, love is why Paul held back commands in chapter 12. Because you can't, you can't simply command body life. You have to inject it with real love. And Paul's attempt to do that is chapter 13, along with all of his prayers and the example he laid out for them when he was with them. Love, love, love. I will. No, no, don't, don't do that. Letter A. The gifts and the mutual honor that goes with them are crucial sources of the body's unity and health. However, the most important force that creates the kind of humility, honor, and esteem that creates, I said creates twice, sorry, I didn't proof this well enough, that creates the body is agape, the Greek word for love. Love is the volitional and emotional attitude that supersedes and animates all the gifts and all religious works. It's, and I'm, I'm summarizing and paraphrasing the entire chapter. That's what I'm doing in letter A. Its character is personal, relational, Selfless, life-giving, and consistent. Bears all things, believes all things. It has character traits that are concrete. What, what is love? Love's not that abstract. It's patient. It's kind. It's not jealous. does not boast. does not seek its own. One of the key things for the Corinthians. Etc., etc. Bears all things, believes all things. It never fails. It's consistent. It's an eternal glory that we have now and will continue to process after the gifts fade away in the age to come. Agape is the mark of true spiritual maturity. And I refer you back to chapters 8 and 9 uh, for your further and personal study. Let her be the point for us in chapter 13 is that agape is the divine and human force that gives us the power to honor those whom the world would not honor. Creating the kind of unity that makes the church Christ's actual body. Only love can do this in our hearts. And, of course, love is the fruit of the Spirit. This is, I believe, the secret to real power. Remember, the Corinthians had gifts, and I, I commend them for that. But they didn't have what Paul called power. There was a level of influence that was lacking, even though they were very charismatic. Part of it is their detachment from the cross, and part of it is their lack of love, which actually relate uh, mere commands cannot unite the church. Only love can create the kind of unity that glorifies Jesus Christ in the church. So number five, speaking of chapter 14, prophecy is the key gift that constructs the church into the body. And you can read my paragraphs and the relevant text on your own. I don't need to read this to you right now. I've run out of time, but um, I'll, I'll just skip right to point B. The point for us in the prophecy of chapter 14 is that prophecy has the power to construct the body of Christ when it's communicated in love and honor. Again, we're still at the Lord's Supper. It was after the supper when the Corinthians began to converse that they would and they would show off. So apparently, somehow, other tongues was a badge of honor that was parallel to their social honor. 
And Paul's like, well, first of all, your selfishness isn't helping anybody. And second of all, no one under, uh, understands when you speak in all these tongues. Though that's fine to do on your own, I wish you all did it. That's when you construct your own spirit, soul, and body. But when you're in this body, you have to speak in a language we all understand. The positive aspect of that is that prophecy is a powerful tool in the gathered community. Each person in a gathering has something to offer according to his or her gifts. In 1 Corinthians 14, 26, there's different things offered, not just prophecy, but prophecy is the main thing, and it all should be intelligible. That means it all should be in English or in Italia, if you happen to be in Italy. Or whatever the native language is. It has to be intelligible. This is how the body of Christ is built. So number six. Now here's a summary of the important elements from these passages that are important for the gathering and formation of Christ's body through relationships and the spirit. Letter A is just summarizing some points. The Lord's Supper is an apostolic tradition instituted by the Lord. It involves sacred but joyful fellowship around the Lord's table, mutual honor, an actual banquet, Remembering the Lord's covenant sacrifice for us and looking forward to his glorious return. Just summarizing. Letter B, agape is the covenant force that enables the body members to exercise honor and the gifts of the spirit. Letter C, honor is the covenant force that cleanses the world system from the church by reversing it and creating unity. Letter D, God's people as different members of Christ's body must show and share the Spirit during their gatherings in order to hear the fullness of His message, experience edification, and become more unified. I believe there's exceptions to that. Here I've done all the speaking in this gathering. There's a specific purpose and a teaching. In fact, the whole point is to get this Not to perpetuate what I'm doing right now, even if we have a continual school. It's all the river that feeds the house churches. Because the Spirit will not speak completely through me to anybody, any body. Though my role may be important, it's for the sake of a more complete expression of Christ and the Spirit. So the the Spirit must be shown and shared during gatherings in order to hear the fullness of His message, experience edification, and become more unified. And letter E, the occasion for showing and sharing the Spirit is the Lord's Supper. Now, number seven. Here's, I want to talk a little bit about house church practice among the King's people. This is what we're going for. And if I don't get through this or get through it too quickly, I'll just recap and go back over it next time and overlap with the next unit. All right? So letter A, again, two key values to the kingdom expression are relationships which is parallel to our community value, and the spirit, which is parallel to our restoration value. The kingdom of heaven manifests in family and mission. How do we get those? On either score, we invest in the spirit and we invest in relationships. If we just think that way, how can I develop relationships with the people that I'm close with in the Lord or that are part of my, my family or my location? That's important. You have to develop relationships in the body of Christ. And how can I develop relationships outside in my sphere of influence? Some of you may have occupations where that's much more challenging because you might be more on the move or whatever. But you can still pray. How out there in my walk of life, even if it's easier on the weekends or special occasions, Lord, give me wisdom or move me so I could develop relationships. And in those relationships, how can I manifest the spirit? So these are two things we can always hang our hat on. 
It's things we can invest ourselves in, in the church and in mission. Relationships and the spirit. All right, all right, we argue. Okay, letter B. To cultivate these values as a family, we have chosen not to have weekly services as our main expression of church, but to have smaller house church gatherings in which we can build relationships and share the gifts of the spirit. This will take commitment, training, practice, shared ownership of responsibilities, and solid emerging leadership from within these churches. Now, note, it is our intention to have larger weekly gatherings as the Lord provides for us. It's not that we don't want to have them. We intend to have them. Because I think there's a certain blessing and an aspect of of life in the kingdom that's granted us there. But we don't want that to be definitive. We desire to gather the house churches in these larger gatherings for worship, prayer, special teaching, prophecy, and a glimpse into the larger picture of what God's doing in the other churches. We we want to provide, uh, the Lord to provide for that and then us to provide for this forum for us. But we don't want that to be the definitive expression. Because you can't just practice family in that environment. And some people, that's all they want to do. And if that is all they want to do, God bless them. I mean, we'll even provide that. But we'll always be communicating our values and living out our values outside of that. Examples of house church gatherings. These are the kinds of things that we envision happening as tools and guides for things the house churches will be doing. Number one, these are different forms of meetings. And some people have food every time they gather, no matter what they do. And that's absolutely fine. Unless you're all fasting. That's fine to do that. Food and fellowship, they go together. People make fun of it sometimes, but I refuse to do that. Number one. Like, they always have to have, you know, praise the Lord and who's bringing the the potatoes or whatever. It's like, hey, man, break them bread house to house. I don't have a problem with that. If we're dedicated to fasting, that's one thing. Otherwise, okay. Number one, the Lord's Supper. You could start with prayer and or worship. A meal with courses, I don't mean like seven courses, but where you have, you distinctly, you exercise or you recognize the bread and perhaps at the end you partake of, of the wine, the juice, we're in America. Um, so, but we use those to remember the Lord. Perhaps in light of the Passover, some people do it as a more Seder. I don't think that's necessary. The main thing is the banquet with the elements as described in 1 Corinthians and the Gospels. But that's one thing that can happen after a time of prayer and worship. There's then the meal during which you break off into the recognition of the, the body and blood of the Lord. Then you have a time of prayer and sharing the gifts in fellowship. Uh, I give you a list there. You just do those things. Uh, but it depends on how you coordinate it. If, if you do it during the day, if it's maybe Sunday is the day you do it, you have more time to work these things out. They need time. We've been doing it on Thursday nights. We limit ourselves to a couple of hours because of all the children in our present group. Uh, but even then, we usually go later. And so we'll t- we've been doing the Lord's Supper once a month. I prefer to do it more often, but I don't think we're there right now. And we're only in a, we're a developmental pilot group ourselves. Or you could just do a prayer meeting. And this could begin with worship. And then prayer where different people are praying, and then there's a prophetic element where the people share what the Spirit is saying. Then you pray again, having received that holistic information from the Spirit through one another. So some of these can be dedicated to prayer. After a time of worship, you pray. During your prayer time, you've been hearing from God. You pause and you talk, and you get people talking of what the Spirit's saying. You find the coordination and the unity of what He's been saying. You take all that and you pray it out again. It's very effective praying. It's what we used to spend most of our time doing in our morning prayer meetings in in Fire, Pensacola, uh, 8 to 10. 
And um, for me, it was more than good prayer meetings. It was prophetic, and it was great fellowship and connecting in the Spirit. It was an awesome, very simple, but powerful format. No matter what state of mind I was in when I got there, when I left, I felt whole. Even if I was discouraged on something specific that the Lord did not even address, just hearing from God and being in the saints, among the saints in the Spirit, made me completely just soaring out of that room. Nine times out of ten, very rare, we would not hit the target. It did happen sometimes, but it was unusual. And it takes practice to get there, to, to pray and hear God together in the Spirit. It takes practice and teaching uh, and more practice. But it's a great thing to do. Number three, a teaching meeting. Begin with worship. One or two people bring a word of teaching. These are people with either they get a word from the Lord or they're effective teachers. Not everybody has that gift, but those that are among you. Then you discuss it. You talk about it. And other things people said you could talk about. These things can be judged. It's not a performance. And you pray about it. This, these are just suggestions. Freestyle. These are different things we've done. Freestyle. This takes practice and development. This is where you just together, get together and you worship and you see what the Spirit says and does. And I've been in meetings like this. And it takes a certain level of know-how and maturity. But when it happens, it's extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. I was in a meeting like this uh, up in Minnesota when we visited Art, Katz, Ben Israel. Was someone here? Well, you guys were with us. That last meeting, do you remember Janet Dalos Ray started the meeting? We were all sitting there quiet. And one of the shyer, less spoken girls starts out with this prayer that was incisive and powerful. And then one thing after the other. This one sings a song, and we all go into that song. This one says a prayer. One guy got up, a capable teaching, and charged us and exhorted us, a teaching for about 12 minutes. I mean, it, was, it all seemed coordinated in the spirit. It was not random, but there was no planning. Prayer, song, the teaching, it was all very coordinated, and it was an extremely powerful experience. One of the most unusual experiences, internally speaking, in terms of church, in my life. And was even the, the, one of the last, if not the last, meetings of a whole week of being together. And so even that took, you know, that week of being together to do something that was such a mature expression of the Spirit, where we could come in with no plans and follow the Spirit from point to point. It was pretty awesome. Okay, I'm going to finish this next time. I'll go back over the, these other ones and finish it next time and move into our new material. I'm sorry that I didn't finish today, but it's okay. We'll just meet up next time, and if you can't come, we will post it online because we record these things. Don't be sad, Rob. you got kids back there too, don't you? <clears throat> that may be one of the reasons why we have to get done early. Just joking. Not your kids. <laughs> yeah, okay, fine with me. <laughs> So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord increase the the shining of his face on you, be gracious to you, and give you peace in Jesus' name. Amen. See you hopefully most of you next time. God bless.